Hello, everyone. Uh, this is a big day for tennis with an accent. Uh, today we have a Hall of Famer among us, Steve Plank, who uh, was inducted in the Tennis Hall of Fame. He's a tennis historian. He's been covering tennis for so long and one of the finest brains in tennis. So it's an absolute honor, Steve, to have you here and uh, just uh, answer some of the questions, and hopefully the audience would be delighted to hear from you. Well, so Keith, thank you for having me, and I look forward to trying to field some of your questions. Yeah, I'm mostly totally a student today. I mean, you know, I'm totally out of my league, so I'm going to just uh, help me, uh, help you help me navigate through some of the questions I have. So we know your historical association with covering the sport. So when you started covering the sport, how much of a representation American media had, say, at Wimbledon and French Open, those majors abroad? What was the environment like for you to be covering these guys back then? Well, in some ways, it was a larger representation. I mean, I, I would say that obviously the total press turnout is substantially larger these days worldwide. But the key American, there were so many key American journalists who came there every single year, like Mike Lupica, the Daily News, Neil Amder, the New York Times, Barry Lord, who had been with the Washington Post and then the San Diego newspaper. There were a bunch, and obviously Bud Collins. We had. It was sort of automatic that newspapers would send their their reporters to be there. It was essential. It's changed somewhat now, and 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 it it, it now it's it's uh, that it's not an automatic anymore with the newspapers. So I felt in some ways it was we had a larger, maybe more important presence then than we do now. Absolutely. And do you think uh, since you know you've covered and you still cover these tournaments? Uh, Back in the day when there was not enough coverage, and I'm sure same same holds for the United States, even though I've only been here since the 90s. Back in the day when you're covering Wimbledon or French Open, uh, not every match was on TV, so the written word and your reporting had more value in terms of the fans relied heavily. So you think the reporting has changed since then for someone like you? Because now there are like live streams of like 250 events, even from places like India and China, uh, whereas back in the day, the morning newspaper was a big source uh, for people to know how Connor did or how Chris Everett did or what Lendl was doing, relying on, you know, uh, reporters like you who were there for the action. Has much changed in terms of the style of reporting for someone like you who's done it all? Well, I fortunately, I've been able to sort of uh, maintain the same type of approach to the reporting that I always did, highly detailed accounts of matches. And I guess I'm known for that, and I've been fortunate that I can keep doing it. But you put your finger on something important. We were relied upon more, and therefore the reporting back then, I think, went much heavier on reporters' analysis, how how they picked apart the match and what they thought the turning points were in great detailed accounts, and maybe a few quotes here and there, not nearly as many as today. So what happened over time with the emergence of much more worldwide television was I think reporters began to rely more on quotes. And I don't think today's reporters, as a rule, uh, are on top of the matches quite to the same degree they were when I broke in. That's not a knock on them. They're, a lot of my colleagues, have a, it's a different emphasis in terms of what they want to convey to people they think have seen these matches on television. But it's definitely... Uh, contrast with what I saw because I think then the the reporters didn't care as much about what the players said. There might be a quote or two. They would use it particularly after a final. But otherwise, they relied on their own capacity to uh, dig inside a match and get to the heart of it. Uh, okay, another question probably uh, 
asking the same question in a different way. Now, someone like you who probably has leverage on what story would you cover, but over the years, has the production assignment from an editor or from a TV channel, whoever you're reporting for, has it covered? Uh, in, has it changed the sense uh, the assignment is focused, say, on like uh, Borg, McIndoe, or now Federer Djokovic, or you look for something interesting, or how do you make the balancing act on what you're going to cover, say, in a fortnight when a lot of people are relying on what you will be relaying in terms of coverage? Yeah, that uh, you know, it's it, that's changed too. I mean, in some cases, it was automatic. In the days with World Tennis Magazine in the '70s into '91, I would I would automatically cover all the men's or the women's event, whichever it might be. And then that was the same with Tennis Week, where I worked from '92 to 2007. Then, since I started writing for TennisChannel.com and Tennis.com, it's I pretty much have chosen what I wanted to do. But now there's an editor. I'm working with an editor because we've all moved over to Tennis.com. All the Tennis Channel writers and we're combining with the tennis.com writers, and therefore they have an editor there that we try to coordinate with. Uh, uh, so, for instance, in the course of a fortnight at Wimbledon, I'll write five columns, and I may confer, I'll confer with the editor on some of the earlier days because I want to make sure there's no replication. You know, it'd be silly for me to write on the same match that one of my colleagues is doing. So we coordinate that with him, and he might say, which one would you – do you want to write Djokovic today? Do you want to write Federer? And I'll put in my request, and then we work it out that way. But then after the finals, I automatically will write on the two finals. So uh, it's it's very well uh, laid out and fairly done, and I'm perfectly I'm very happy with the way with the setup I've got and my ability to do pretty much what I want to do uh, in terms of the writing and the, and the subjects. Hmm. Uh, let's focus a little bit on Wimbledon. Uh, what's your first memory when you went there as a reporter? Uh, um, I assume you were a tennis fan and uh, you wanted to be there. So how does that place uh, stand out to all the other modern places? Because uh, some of the other places in other sports have also, you know, sport has changed. Even traditional sports like cricket, uh, places have modernized around even UK and Australia. So what is Wimbledon's significance and what's your first memory? Just walk us through how it felt then when you were there wow. on the grounds for the first time. Yeah, I mean, the first time, fortunately, I, I went there as a fan for the first time, a 12-year-old with my father, just about to turn 13 in the summer of 65. And it really, it, it, I've told this story, but it's really true in that I, I, we went out there on a cloudy day in the first week, and I watched Rafael Asuna, who'd won the U.S. championships two years earlier. And I watched him in an early round match against Ingo Buding, a German player, and out on court three, and I, from that moment, I was just so entranced by the sport. I'd watched a little on television for a few years, but I'd never been to a, a tournament in person. My father had gone over to London to work in London that year, and so he just wanted me to see Wimbledon as a cultural experience, as, just as a major sporting event, having no idea that I was going to get so immersed so quickly that from that day forward, I followed it, as you alluded to earlier, I would pick up the newspaper in the morning. I'd look for all the results and all the accounts I could find. I was completely hooked on the sport because there was just something about the elegance of the surroundings at Wimbledon I, 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 that drew me into the sport so deeply. And that led eventually to my, by 1972, I was helping Bud Collins behind the scenes with his newspaper work for the Boston Globe and his, his television commentary for NBC and and then by 74, I was working full-time at World Tennis Magazine. And I actually had to miss a couple of Wimbledon's in those years because I've been to all but three since 1965. And I had to miss 74, 5, and 6. That's when I was starting off with World Tennis. But that that day in 65 was, was a crucial day in my life because it, 
it made me want to become, by the time I was 15, by a couple of years later, I knew I wanted to be a tennis reporter, and I pursued that full tilt uh, till the day I, I, my, my wish was granted. No, absolutely. I think uh, we are all witnesses because, you know, you have really covered the sport in a way that's exemplary, and, you know, we still enjoy uh, whatever comes out of your column. Uh, well, that being you're nice said, to, you're nice. You're nice to say that. I appreciate it. No, I mean, believe me, I don't have to make this up because your coverage is legendary. I was there at your induction uh, last year when Chris Everett introduced you, and uh, for for some of us uh, who didn't re- recall those memories, it was kind of uh, funny that how she said, even for her matches, she relied so much on you sometimes when she was, you know, she was promptly being corrected in the press room if she gave a wrong account or incorrect detail of a match. So is, was that your strength, or that was a fan in you who always just kept no mental notes of something like this? Yeah, I think it was. Fortunately, it was my strength. You know, and it, it, as you know, I'm sure from your own life experiences, the mind is a strange thing because I couldn't retain very many details from astronomy or U.S. history or <laughs> school or my English courses. I mean, I, I thought English courses were important, but my point is that the mind, I didn't. I no matter how hard I tried with those things, if I didn't have a passion for it. Then, then I didn't retain it. I think a lot of people are, are that way. But I found that with tennis, as it had been the case with baseball before I was before tennis, that I all of the details would just they were locked inside my head. And once I, you know, read that score in the newspaper, I remembered it. And then I had a photographic memory as well, which made it really easy for me in, in terms of Chrissy's matches or anybody else's. In that I could really I could picture where I was sitting, what shot the player hit at a certain time, what happened on match point. It was just unnatural for me, and I've, I'm very grateful for that because it gave me a certain niche in the sport that I've been able to keep going for all these years. Uh, and absolutely, America, as we all know, and Australia have a very rich history in, in in the sport of tennis, and I'm sure the writers like yourself have always had good stories uh, to report back home for. Uh, you know, home homegrown tennis heroes, and a lot of other countries in the global sport are not as blessed. So, just let, walk me us through the... let me interrupt you just for a quick second before we go on to that. Were you covering the ceremonies last year? I'm interested in why you were in Newport. No, no, I was there as a, a fan, and uh, that day, but uh, I, I've covered the early days of the tournament. I'm, uh, I just didn't have the media pass for the induction. I was there for the first few days. I met Leander Pays and. And I, I conducted some interviews, but uh, for the actual ceremony, I didn't uh, get the pass. I see. Okay. All right. And then you came from Boston to see that, right? Yeah, I was only like, yeah, I, I went. I was there four days, so I, I made sure I come and watch. You know, you Roddick and uh, Kim Kleister. So that was a that was a good way of just coming there, and uh, yeah, I, I spent a few days leading up to that. So. Yeah, well, that's nice. Nice to hear that. But go back. I'm sorry for interrupting your train of thought. Go back to what no, no. Just as a fan, because you know, like uh, in India, I'll, well, I'll personalize my experience because uh, I represent the generation of fans uh, that came in, you know, with the Boris Becker boom. Because that was also the time when Indian middle class was getting color TV and grass uh, looked really greener on on, on TV those days. And uh, as a kid, my dad introduced me to tennis, and I realized everybody's school. And the whole Becker phenomena, you know, introduced the sport. We had Amrit Raj and Krishnan, uh, but unlike yeah, Americans and Australians, we didn't have many of our own. So we covered the sport, or we got the sport through the BBC lens and through Boris Becker, Edberg, and maybe Agassi later on. But for you, who was covering the sport, you always had Connors, Everett, Navratilova, McEnroe, and even before Stan Smith and Arthur Ashe. So how right. was it covering local stories? Because uh, now I'm sure it's a little different because 
Serena and Venus are there, but a lot of the focus is on the Federer, Nadal, and the Djokovic and Murray, the Europeans. A lot of American stories are not as big on the men's side. So walk yes, us through and, that and, difference. And that, and that gets back, actually, Sakeep, that gets back to what you were saying earlier in that when you asked about the U.S. presence at Wimbledon. I think if we'd had somebody to – obviously, Roddick was in – he lost three Wimbledon finals to – Federer and one in the U.S., but the point is Roddick was always a threat there, and he's the last American man to win a major, and Venus and Serena, particularly Serena in recent years, have carried it, but uh, that does make a difference, because you cited very well, going back to the days of uh, Smith and Ash and early open era, and Connors and McEnroe from that point, and on to Agassi and Sampras and Curry and all the, we we had a wealth of great American players among the men that, that were selling points of sorts to newspaper editors because they were always a threat to win majors. So that has changed dramatically because you think about it, Roddick, the last American man, you know, he won the U.S. Open in '03, and we've had quite a dearth since then, even though we've had some very fine players. So that, that makes a difference in terms of the reporting as well. It doesn't bother me, by the way, in the sense that I wish we'd like to see the Americans reemerge, and, and I think it goes in cycles and it'll happen, but... I think the generation that you just alluded to, you know, this magical generation of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, and Vavrinka to a much lesser degree have really carried the sport so well, captured the public imagination even in this country. So I think that's been a, a great thing for tennis. And uh, you probably have the best seat in the house because, uh, you know, till Tennis Channel came, uh, it was a very singular commentary for a fan, even in America. It was just like one network or Wimbledon was covered by HBO. It was just not, uh, you know, but it was usually the same commentators. But uh, since you have, you know, covered the sport, do you think, uh, uh, okay, let me say it, how, how do I say it? Yeah, because uh, a lot of the ESPN narrative when I came in here in the 90s was Sampras, I guess you were at the top. So they used to give these stats, which uh, were like Becker, Borg, and Patrick Rafter were the only few players outside of America who made it in America, and now things have changed with Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. So do you think Ivan Lendl did not ever, like a guy like Lendl, didn't get his due with the American media? Because his numbers are stellar, if you look at him. I know it's kind of a back-and-forth question, but uh, do, you, do you see where I'm coming from? Oh, uh, Completely. I, in fact, I, I completely share your point of view. And I think the reason that he didn't get his due uh, was because Con- he was surrounded by Connors and McEnroe, who were often disparaging him. Uh, you know, he w- wasn't treated very well by either one of them. They, I think both Jimmy and John could have shown Yvonne more respect, but for a multitude of reasons, they didn't. And uh, Lendl was not the kind of guy that tried to win a popularity contest. Uh, he reminded me of Pete Sampras in that regard. He just went out and did his job, and I, I admired it because he was so earnest. But here's a guy that, you know, had that slow start in terms of majors, losing the four finals, and then he... He ends up winning eight majors. He gets to eight U.S. Open finals in a row. Had a, a, a phenomenal record. And I think he carried himself with great dignity and character. And to get back to your point, no, he didn't get his due. And uh, I've tried to get at that with him in interviews, and he's so uh, self-effacing in that regard that he won't whine about it or complain about it. But I definitely believe somewhere deep down uh, he, he it must be it, it must be disconcerting to him to feel like he worked that hard and changed the game also by the way a transformational player in my regard because of his style and the the big serve and setting up the inside out for him which Courier later adopted and a lot of players did and 
but no, he did not get his due, and that's primarily because uh, it was the Connors McEnroe era. They were the popular Americans, and they didn't like him very much, and Yvonne suffered as a result. And you think now he's more open about it since, of course, it's you know 20 years or 24 years removed from his retirement, but when he was playing, or even you can take it to some other players uh, in the same category, when the, uh, they're just not as popular and some of the media outlets are just not you know, covering them in the same regard. Uh, you think uh, those stories are just uh, less fancy to cover or because you're not giving many quotes out, out of a guy like Lendl? Because Becker was always very opinionated guy and safe, so was Goran Ivanisevic. Yes. yes, you're right. You're right. Obviously, they're the easiest because they, they speak out so freely and it's just a natural to them. And then guys that are more reserved like a Sampras, like a, an Ivan Lendl, then they don't get celebrated as much as they should. And uh, I, I, I find that – I never looked at it that way. I, I liked writing on Lendl a great deal. I loved writing on Sampras, and I admired them both enormously. And, and I don't – you know, it sort of reminds me of the baseball player Derek Jeter. I don't think it was Derek Jeter's job to provide colorful quotes to the press or Sampras's or Lendl's job. It was their job to go out and be as excellent as they could be in their profession, and they all did that beautifully. So that's how I look at it, at least. But you're right. A lot of others don't, and they want the charismatic, colorful characters like a Becker uh, who, who are outspoken and make their job easier. And it's the sort of that you're putting Sampras in there because a lot of time most American fans who are young may not realize that Sampras, you know, did not get sometimes – the importance he deserved. I remember in 98 when he locked up the uh, number one ranking for the sixth year, he even asked Becker to give him a Vienna wild card leading up to, you know, because he needed to close that ranking for six years. Yeah. And when he came back winning the Masters, he, I read in the New York Times, I don't really recollect exactly, but he said, I was expecting more than six or seven media people, you know, waiting at the airport because this is something that I've done has never been done and this may very well stand the test of time. Do you recall that moment? Oh, very well, very well. And he had a right to feel that way. And, and Part of the problem was that the outlets, I think a lot of more American reporters would have liked to have gone, but it was over in Germany. It's the end of the year. Some of them were covering other sports. But still, this was a singular achievement to, to do it for six straight years. Federer's never done it or Nadal or Joe. I, I don't know if that will be equal. In the, and he had never paid so much attention to a number one ranking, but that meant a lot to him. Mm-hmm. The previous years, his whole, his whole emphasis and priorities were about winning majors and let the ranking take care of itself. And let it be what it what it will be, but you're right. That one was a, a monumental quest that he made, and he actually was not eating well, and he just wasn't feeling great because he was putting so much stress on himself. And even at that year-end event, you know, he clinched it and then lost, had match points against Croatia and lost in the semifinals because he had just the, the air came out of the balloon, understandably. But he had a right to be upset because the achievement was so substantial. And yet, it seemed to be taken for granted. And I think if it had been Andre Agassi, somehow I think the turnout would have been greater. And that, that to me, was fundamentally unfair to Sampras. Uh, fair enough. I'm kind of losing the script here because I'm enjoying your answer so much. But here's another question which may not, which which will make a shift uh, the topic here. We, let's talk about Jimmy Connors. Uh, uh, I grew up, in, again, like in India, and I used to read a magazine called Sports Star, and I didn't see Connors uh, live till. Uh, actually recorded till 87 semis uh, when he lost to Cash in Wimbledon, and then they were showing a recording in India during the rain delay that he had beaten Michael Panforge. And for us there, he was a comeback man who was always firing the crowds up. But till very later on, I realized that even the U.S. Open crowd really did not warm up to him till he lost one of the finals and he said something. 
So what was Connor's relationship uh, with the American sport and tennis in general and why we haven't seen much of him and we see, you know, some other retired players occupy these big, big, you know, media posts. What's the missing link there? Is, is, does he choose to stay away or is there some history that a lot of fans don't know? Why is Jimmy Connor not seen more and just walk us through that one? Well, he's a loner. He's a loner. I think it doesn't surprise me really. He's sort of protective of his privacy and he, uh, you know, he, do, he he didn't know that many reporters well. There were a few like Mike Lupica who got to know him very well and Peter Bodo to a degree, but the, but he kind of liked to keep to himself as, even as much of a public figure as he was. Now, as far as the way the pub, so it doesn't surprise me that he's been somewhat reclusive in his retirement and making very selected appearances. He did have to make a lot of them for his book four years ago when he, came out with his autobiography, and that required him to get out there and do the interviews, which he did. But he's uh, – what happened – the public perception was simply that, obviously, he was a maverick and something of an outlaw in the early years, managed by Bill Reardon, this charismatic Irishman. And Bill kind of pulled a lot of strings, and there were a lot of lawsuits flying around against the ATP and Arthur Ashe and a lot of figures in the sports. So he became uh, sort of a contentious figure. And the crowd, and then of course his behavior. There was a, a certain amount of lewdness on the court, and even though he was a just a, a extraordinary competitor, he he didn't always behave that well. Uh, and and there were there were a lot of vulgar gestures. So the crowd, a lot of people in the early years didn't like him. I think what happened was that when McEnroe came along in the late latter part of the 70s, uh, you know, then he became more of the bad boy. Jimmy was able to sort of look more like an elder statesman, even though he still did have some some moments uh, where, where his behavior was questionable. He he became he was the one they'd lo- known longer, and slowly the by the by the 80s, the fans really warmed to him. They had a totally different feel for him, and I think over time they also just appreciated his supreme competitiveness because he is one of the to me he's one of the two or three greatest competitors I've ever seen up there with Rafael Nadal and Pancho Gonzalez, and and they 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 definitely took to him over time. But the the early Connors of the Mid seventies up until late seventies, early to late seventies, I would say, was not popular because they were trying to understand, you know, his demeanor and his conduct. And uh, but over time, he really won over a lot of American fans. Yeah, that's what I recall: the Crickstein match and the ninety-one run. That oh, was, yeah, the, you know, that's oh, yeah, such, such a poster for a lot of us who didn't see his career unfold. We were a little young then, but yeah, that's that time. If somebody had told me. That Connors wasn't a crowd darling, it was hard to believe. But then the more you follow the sport, you find out more details that it wasn't always the case with him. Oh, not uh, at all. Was, in fact, it was the opposite early on. Yeah. But, but again, as he approached, you know, in other words, I, I think of the difference between when he beat Ken Rosewall at Wimbledon 6 1, 6 1, 6 4 in the finals of 74, just routed the great Rosewall. And that was not, the fans were not happy about that. A lot of the fans were not happy. I think they wanted Ken to finally win the title, and it didn't happen. And, Jimmy was the the maverick, the outlaw, the, the anti-establishment figure. And yeah. but by the time he won in '82 over McEnroe, the crowd was wholeheartedly behind him and wanted him to beat McEnroe. And I think many American fans did as well. So it's, that's because he was now approaching 30 in '82. He turned 30 that September. So a lot happened between his early 20s and the time he turned 30. And then from 30 on, right on through his 30s. Uh, he was he was viewed very differently and and became immensely popular. Yeah, and Connors and Chris Everett, especially that. I remember, you know, I'm, I'm sure 
even till today, Wimbledon has their share of paparazzi and a lot of tabloidism that goes. Uh, and a lot of times, players, it can become a distraction. But you were part of the media room. And uh, how's Wimbledon covered in for the British media, especially the tabloid side of things? It's, it's huge. Sometimes we don't get the same focus. With not, I'm not saying tabloid focus is good, but that just shows how much focus Wimbledon gets in the U.K., Walk us through that one, and uh, over the years, has it slowed down? Is it still the same? Do Federer and Nadal still get the same level of paparazzi treatment, or what's the balancing act there for that kind of media? No, I don't think it has changed much, and they do put a great emphasis on tennis, and obviously they understand, these people understand that Wimbledon is the premier tournament in tennis. More people pay attention to Wimbledon. That's what's always excited me about it, is that the eyes of the world are on it, and as hard as we might try, as hard as people might want the U.S. Open to be on a par. It's not quite. It's a very close number two, in my in my view, and a great tournament. But Wimbledon is always the, the, the crown jewel and the Kentucky Derby of tennis. So, therefore, there, there's, a, there's a real push on those reporters, on the tabloid reporters, as there is, by the way, on their, their more mainstream reporters, because I've spoken to some of them, and you'd think they might take a break after the French with this three-week gap before Wimbledon, but they, they cover the other tournaments, and then that week before Wimbledon, they're running all over the place chasing stories because they know that there's a there's a real market for that. So I don't think the tabloid stuff has changed much at all. And maybe it can be a little unpleasant for some of the people that are subjected to reporting that may not be of the highest quality or accuracy. But I I don't I don't I haven't seen a big change in that since the uh, uh, since the days when I first covered it in the 70s. Um, and then of course uh, we cannot you know. Not talk to you and not mention the Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova epic rivalry. These days the word epic is, you know, loosely used as far as I guess the medium that social media is. But there's, there's, you know, everything's epic about that rivalry. How much, how many matches they played at the grandest of stages. Uh, is there a memory you want to share that really is not talked about in mainstream media when you covered these two wonderful athletes and some story that, you know, that can delight our audiences? Something that's really a Steve Frank special that won't be found if you Google something? <laughs> About these two players? Well, I'd, I'd, I'd have to think. Of, I'd have to think about it. I would say this: they, you described it well. And I don't think there's been any rivalry like it in sports, frankly. I mean, people compare it to the Yale Harvard football rivalry, or some of the fighting rivalries like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, or Boston Celtics and the L.A. Lakers in basketball. There's a lot of comparisons, but I don't think anything is measured up to it. Nor in in tennis either, and we've had some. We we now still have the ongoing Federer Nadal series, which is pretty spectacular. Twenty three fifteen for Nadal, and and going back to, you know, they'll they'll end up having a rivalry that lasts almost as long, or maybe as long as Everett and Navratilova. But uh, I just have a funny personal story where that I could probably share with you, which is that they had a they had a semi they had their last meeting on the center court. They played a semifinal. In '88, you know, and obviously they'd had a lot of. Martina had beaten Chrissy in the finals of the '78 and '79 Wimbledon's, and then again in '82, '84, and '85, she won five finals from her. But they they also played a bunch of semis, and this was their last meeting on the center court, and ended in so in such a bizarre fashion, which you would never see, which was a questionable call on the sideline against uh that went against Everett and Navratilova let it go I mean she didn't ask to have the point replayed they were always so sporting to each other so it ended a bit on a bit on a sour note because they were they were so respectful of each other and 
was tough for uh, Christy to lose. A, it looked like she might be making a spectacular comeback and lost mm. it on a, on a questionable call on a passing shot. And then she, I, I had a little exchange. She was going to get married, and, and Navratilova went to her wedding, which was only a few weeks after that Wimbledon. Showed you what, what respect and the friendship they had. But I also attended that wedding. And I remember no. she, she, uh, uh, that Chrissy sent a card to me. On my birthday falls during Wimbledon, and sent a funny card because she's always had a great, set, great sense of humor. And then on the card, she said something about, and uh, see you at the wedding, and uh, and she said, and by the way, the bloody ball was on the line. <laughs> you know, with an exclamation, where it showed her great sense of humor, and and, uh, and I mean, I think That's that funny. sort of summed her up, and I think. Mm. And I think it's some Martina up to in the sense that they they, they didn't hold any. There were no hmm. lingering grudges like any rivalry. There were difficult periods of com- when they were competing with each other, but the respect was always there. And I, that yep. just I thought that was an interesting moment personally that sort of summed up uh, Everett's character, and then Navratilova being summed up by the fact that there she was at the wedding a few days, a few weeks later, and there was no, there were never any hard feelings that that. Uh, that lasted for any significant amount of time. That 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 rivalry was one of a kind. It was indeed, and I'm sure, and you'll definitely agree, Connors and McIndoe wouldn't have shared that kind of a point. Uh, no, no, and the other story that I remember too, that that I, I, maybe not as quite as well known, that I think was great, was that they were waiting on Super Saturday in 84 to play their final, and Lendl and Cash was going very long, and Lendl eventually, this is at the U.S. Open, and Lendl yes. eventually saved a match point with a topspin lob that he later told me was with his backhand grip. It was a forehand topspin lob that he hit with his backhand grip because he just had to improvise, and he just came up with it, and it was a perfect lob. But the point is that match went on into a fifth-step tiebreak. So they just couldn't gauge how long it was going to be till they got on the court. And then in the locker room, they were sharing a bagel. And, hmm. again, you know, that, again, I don't think you see that with Connors and McEnroe either. No, you don't. Uh, let's jump a little forward in the timeline of the current plays. I know a lot of uh, media personnel and a lot of stories have been going back to the McIntyre, Becker, and Connors, and even Nastasi back then, the sports need personalities. Uh, you think sports are in a good uh, hand when Federer and Nadal really don't badmouth each other for the most part, really get along for being top rivals? Uh, Novak Djokovic, too, he's a nice bloke, and Andy Murray, you know, so all these top men, especially the men's side, uh, it, it was not the case. The handshakes were different now. It's just like very polite. Uh, do you think this kind of personality, like the Tim Duncan kind of a good good guy image, is good for the sport? Sports benefiting, but uh, you think that's or, or you need like we need some sort of a change up in there. We need a couple of not bad guys, but you know a couple of guys who really don't get along, and that could be a good narrative for for the common fan, uh, right. so they can it's relate. Funny. Yeah, I've heard people say that. I've heard that case made. I, I guess a part of me understands it, but I don't. I frankly don't think that's what we need. I I believe that when when players carry the sport as honorably as as they all have, and they have they have more moments of just they have minor disagreements or differences in points of view, Rafa and Roger at times, and and I sometimes I feel like Novak is in, you know going back to the Connors McEnroe Lendl era that in some ways Novak is the is the Lendl in the equation, in the sense that the public is is taken so much to Rafa and Roger and and, and Novak comes off as the intruder. But I believe, which I think is very unfair, but I think they all have, they, they bring so much, so many dynamic qualities to the court that I, I don't really think the public cares that there's not a, a deep-seated hatred or vitriol between these 
top players that brings that makes it more magnetic. I don't think they need that because I think the tennis speaks for itself, which I think, by the way, was how Sampras felt about how he went about his business, that let his racket do the talking. And I think these guys all have done that, and their games are different, their styles are different, their personalities are different, and I don't think we need uh, I don't think we need to have the, 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 any kind of deep animosity existing or bad-mouthing existing trash-talking among those players because I think they, they go about it the right way. And I think the public is, sees it largely that way as well. And definitely you make some very good points there. And uh, even in Sampras' case and even Seppi Graf's case, uh, you've covered them all. So uh, would you agree that they were, it's not like Sampras and Seppi Graf were media shy, but they really didn't give much? In, in their career, or, uh, or is that a perception that's that's not they, correct? They didn't give much what back to the sport. No, but back in the in the press room and interviews, and of course they gave a lot back oh, to the sport. Oh, you mean in like, interviews? In interviews. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, they both tried very hard. Steffi was maybe more. I think she was even more more reserved. I I, I developed a pretty good rapport with Sampras over the years, and and I felt like there were some of us if he trusted you. You had your one on certainly in our one on one interviews with him, he really could open up and uh and explain how you know I remember for instance, I remember i had a I had heard about this incident where uh you know he had played it was at the year end championships in ninety nine and he'd played a bad he'd played a, a you know he played a round robin match where he wasn't at his best, and there was a couple of tie breaks and he comes in and Heinz Gunhardt on Eurosport was very critical of his backhand, and he said that I asked him about it later because what happened was he got so upset with Gunhardt, you know, badgering him about his bad backhand that day that he ended up walking out of the interview uh, on Eurosport, which was not characteristic at all. And I remember I asked him, I'd heard about it, and I asked him about it, and he explained, you know, he said, you know, he just, he says, I'm my own worst critic. I always have been, you know, and he said, but, and I don't mind being asked about it, but he said he wouldn't give it a rest. So he's and and uh, and so I just I, I'd had enough and he got and he explained that he really explained very well with a lot of clarity why he had done that instead of just saying I don't want to talk about it and I think Steffi was capable of that too by the way uh, but maybe she you know maybe she felt a little more under the microscope because of her father was somewhat controversial I don't know in Pete's case though I do think he definitely opened up to some like me that did a a number of one-on-one interviews with him, and and he felt like he could trust you. Uh, that that was a big part of it with him. Did did you know what was he going to be understood, and yeah. was the opening up going to get him in trouble? And I mean, for instance, this guy in the New York Times magazine once wrote a story on Sampras and Agassi in '95 when the two of them had their it was kind of the zenith of their rivalry and the fight for number one and two in the world, and came all came to a head at the U.S. Open with Sampras beating Agassi and essentially clinching the number one ranking for the year by winning that match in four sets in the open final. But a New York Times reporter came in and spent days with them, and then he portrayed Sampras as foul-mouthed and all this stuff. And I remember asking him about that later, too, and that really upset him because the guy was observing him in a lot of off-the-record situations. So he, he kind of just used some language that he, that he would not use in more formal settings, but figuring that it was it was sort of understood that the guy was observing him by the pool with his girlfriend at the time or with his coach and you know and that he he thought he could trust it to be presented fairly and it really was not and it was distorted and at a time when Agassi by the way was getting disqualified from matches for cursing at officials 
And yet that didn't come out in the piece. What came out in the piece was Sampras using this language behind the scenes. So that kind of thing, I think, really upset him. Uh, that's the kind of thing that made him say, okay, I, I'm, I better make sure I know the reporter I'm talking to before I open up like that. So, yeah, absolutely. There's, you're right. There's a trust that, you know, sometimes does get violated and actually it needs to confide because service media is some sort of a relation, a working relation, and you're absolutely right. Um, let me yeah, ask also, you one I guess the, the final point I would make about that is he was such a gentleman, and when he was in public settings and when, you know, it's one thing to use locker room language, you know, in behind-the-scenes settings, which, which a lot of them do, but he always carried himself with great honor and dignity and character in, in, in public and in press conferences and, frankly, in the one-on-one -on -one interviews that I did. So I think it really it, it bothered him that he would be portrayed that way, especially when he gives a reporter that much time and to observe him behind the scenes. And Steffi may have had, felt similarly about it in her case. I don't know if she had an experience like that where she was burned, but it may well have been the case. Uh, let's talk about these two a little more. They were part of some of the biggest upsets in Wimbledon in the last 25 or 30 years. Laurie McNeil took out Graf and Sampras lost to Swiss journeyman George Basel. Boris Becker lost to Peter Duhan and Roger Federer lost to Stokowski. So do you remember these moments? Is there any moment that stands out where, you know, the media, there was frenzy like when this result took place, nobody saw this coming. And I'm sure all these results are like yeah, well, all the out of the norm. Yeah, I mentioned that you have to rattle them off again. Becker Duhan, I remember very well in 87 because Boris has won it two years in a row, and a lot of people thought, well, here we go again. You know, obviously Pat Cash eventually won it. It would have been interesting to see them play that year. But I think that Boris, uh, that was a shocker because he'd won it at 17 and 18, and he was such a great grass court player, and Duhan seemed like just a journeyman. I mean, he was just a solid grass court player. Nobody believed that could happen. And it was a flat match from Becker. I remember that that one very well. Lori McNeil was just a dynamic grass court player who caught Steffi off guard because she was she attacked so much. She also beat Chrissy at the U.S. Open uh, in 87. So she had some big wins, and she was capable on her day of really sort of elevating her game. And she was very dangerous when she was on, and she was on against Steffi, and she caught her totally off guard. Uh, I, Sampras won, I remember well, because against Bastel, that was that was in 2002, and he got put on court two, and I think was a little insulted by that, you know, as a seven-time champion, to be put on court two, which was always kind of known as sort of the graveyard court. There were a lot of upsets there through the years, Connors losing over there, and a whole slew of them losing big matches on court two because it was a distracting court, very noisy. Yes, I believe Agassi lost there, too, to Doug Flack in 96, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, Agassi was kind of a mess back then, yeah. but still, but still, regardless, yeah, these were, there were a whole a lot of shockers on that court, and uh, I think Pete was surprised they put him on there, but I think that uh, Alan Mills, the referee, just felt like it was a match he couldn't lose, and he ended up coming from two sets down, took it to a fifth, and lost in five. One of the most humiliating defeats of his career, but... It also led to that last U.S. Open win in a strange way. I think it drove him on. It made him even more eager to come back and win the Open, which he did, and that obviously was his last tournament. But, yes, those were all, those were all startling uh, losses at, at, uh, at Wimbledon for those players. Well, before we conclude this, I have a couple more questions. I know I'm greedy, but uh, what's happening in the men's game is with this uh, major race, which is like a nuclear arms race, you know, one guy wins and the other guy, and then Djokovic could very well be back in the mix. 
and when in this comparison, a lot of fans, a lot of young media members, not respectfully, sometimes shortchange uh, players from the previous generation. So since you've seen it all, how unreasonable is that to compare? Because the game wasn't the same. Balls were different, rackets were different, surfaces were different, and some rules were different uh, even back then. So how do you make that when a Sampras is called a serve board or Borg is shortchange or Lendl is shortchange? Of course, Federer and Nadal, Djokovic are great, but we cannot shortchange those guys just to make a comparison. And the in this era, majors are more important. Back then, there was a longer, I think, I think need to play a fuller calendar. So where is the balancing act? I mean, for someone like you who is an historian, not to take away anything from these guys, but sometimes is it okay to shortchain those guys to make them look good, or do you stay away from that kind of comparison? Well, you mean you mean uh, historians or fans, or who, who do you think is shortchanging these great players of the past? I'm not sure what you mean. I, I think mostly fans, but even sometimes in media, because yeah. you know, like uh, Sampras, it's highlighted that he didn't reach a clay final. But right, uh, right, then again, right. the counter argument is Grass is not playing like what Grass, Sampras, and Becker used to play on. So yeah, things are different. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, well, I think you're you're onto something here. I, I, you certainly are reflecting my view, which is that. We should not, even if even if you believe, and I do believe it, that in terms of record, Federer is the greatest of all time. Uh, the record is so so magnificent, you know, on all surfaces, and he did get his one French, which was crucial, and uh, you know this, the, the the unassailable consistency he's had, and how you know, just to make it last as long as he has, and you know, winning his first major in 2003 at Wimbledon, and here he is winning one here in 2018. That's pretty remar- remarkable stuff. But, yes, the the Borgs, the Labors, the Sampras do get shortchanged because people's memories are too short. And I think when we, we look at the the argument for greatest player of all time or who who would, you know, who deserves that status, we also have to look at how they played. Labor, when he was on, could beat anybody. He he could struggle with a lot of guys, but when he would hit his stride and he would start, the winners would start flowing off his racket. And he didn't have a great serve; he had a very good serve, but he he his shot making was just so spectacular. And I think that's way too easily forgotten, as is the fact that he won two Grand Slams and won the second in the second year of Open tennis against a very strong cast of rivals, including John Newcomb and Arthur Ashe and Tony Roach and. There were some great ones he had to surpass. Sampras, I think, is probably, he probably is, he's close enough to this generation, but it's too easily forgotten how dominant he could be because he had, to me, the greatest first and second serves in history. And therefore, to me, he he is the best fast court player I've ever seen. I, I put him on harder on harder grass, I would still take him. And by the way, I would still take him even on the, the slower grass that we're seeing now at Wimbledon because I don't think he would have been uh, compromising in, in, in the way he attacked. And Borg is Borg was so brilliant in winning his five. To think what Borg did of five Wimbledons in a row and also six French in that era, to make that transition year after year, those years of 78, 9, and 80 when he won them both in the same year, I mean, that was that was just, and again, with such a short gap, a couple of weeks between the tournaments, biggest surface change, and yet he did it. And he adapted his game so well to the grass. So yes, I do think, and I think we even forget how uh, too easily forget the greatness of Connors and McEnroe and Lendl as well. And I think that's too bad because I think if you put a time warp in an all-time tournament, you'd have some very, very interesting results among the players of the past and today's cast. 
And I'd like to conclude this by saying I, I safely assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, so you like the five-set format? You are in no rush to make this go away? For the majors? Yeah. Yeah, yes, I do. I do. I I, uh, I I believe that that's what sets them apart and that we need we need to stick with that format. I understand the argument. Maybe for some fans it might be with, with shorter attention spans. They might appreciate uh, prefer best of three, but I think it would produce some some upsets that that would not occur in best of five, and I think that's really what makes these majors so unique. And I think you'd really upset the, the leading players, I think, are, are strong advocates of that. And with the days off, by the way, I don't think it's unfair to these guys. Yeah. They, the way the schedule's set up, you're playing seven matches across 14 days at a major. In the case of the French, they actually do 15 days. And, and that's enough time to recover. You get those off days. And frankly, I think sometimes it's physically less demanding, oddly, than some of the Masters 1000s where guys are playing top three set matches yeah. day after day after day with no ability to recover. And I think sometimes a three-hour match, and doing three of those successively can, be, can really wear somebody down. So, no, I'm totally in favor of the, uh, of the best of five set format. Yeah, I'm totally for it, too. And I also don't get the fan argument because supposedly the game is in, in the golden era and uh, there are more new fans. And a lot of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, Del Potro, Wawrinka, a lot of these matches are five-set matches. So if the argument kind of defeats itself because a casual fan usually dials in in the U.S., say, for U.S. Open and Wimbledon and, or French Open, and that's when it's best of five. So I don't know what set of fans are really complaining because uh, the pulse on Twitter is most fans are for the five-set format to stay. You're saying that most of the people on Twitter, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I understood you. Most no, I'm saying most fans like the five-set format, so I don't yeah. know when some people say the fans don't like it. I don't know which fans they're talking about because a lot of legendary matches between the big three or big four or even Wawrinka have happened at the majors, and a lot of casual fans who people are afraid to lose, they only dial in at the majors, so they're not dialing away from the majors because of five-sets, so that's kind of a myth to me. <laughs> Yeah, I think, it's I think good. it is. I, 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 yeah, I don't, I, I don't get the argument, and uh, yeah, I always think of, of you brought up Becker, and I always think, and by the way, another underrated player on a fast court. I don't think he's quite as great as Sampras, but he was a great player. And Boris used to say that, you know, fifth sets are not about tennis; they're yep. about character, <laughs> they're about mental strength, and I think that's true in a way that is not true necessarily of a tight third, th uh, th you know, final set when it's best of three. There's just something very uh, unique and and appealingly demanding about a, a fifth set of in a, a, a big match at a major and coming down to the fifth. Now, I will add, add one thing to that. I think the other three majors are absolutely wrong not to use the tiebreak. The U.S. Open is the only one that does it. I think they're the only one that has it right. I don't like changing the rules so that suddenly you play out the fifth set, and we had the famous Isner-Mahout going to 70-68 in the fifth and ruining uh, Isner pretty much for the rest of the season. And I don't see the point in that. And I know that tra some traditionalists, and I'm a traditionalist myself, but some believe, oh, yes, but you must play it out. I don't understand that. Why, could, why should a match end 7-6 in the fourth? That's okay. A match could end in a four-set tiebreak, but, but they don't go along with a fifth. Uh, I, I think that's wrong. I think that's changing the rules, and it would be like not having a three-point basket in basketball, eliminating it in the fourth quarter or in overtime. I, yep. just don't, I don't go along with changing the rules, and I've always been surprised that there are 
wasn't I mean I know the players maybe some of the players would prefer to play it out but I think in the interest of the fans and frankly in it's in the end it's in the interest of the players too because you get into in a in a marathon five setter in the third round that can destroy your chances of going all the way in the tournament too and I think the game there's enough physicality in this game without having marathon fifth sets that part, I think we all agree. There's no point. I think that should be a tiebreaker, maybe even like ten all or something, if you want to be different. But that's it shouldn't a compromise. Yeah, I could yeah. do that compromise. Sure, yeah. uh, you could do that, and that's that's a reasonable compromise, but not exactly. have to go on in, indefinitely. Absolutely. So, Steve, that was a wonderful chat. I mean, I I learned a lot myself, and hopefully, my audience who tunes in for these podcasts would enjoy that too. So, thanks for really doing this. And I know it was a busy day, uh, a bunch of tennis finals for Sunday. But, uh, yeah, we thoroughly enjoyed this. Well, it was a pleasure to, to come on and talk with you. And you, you you know your tennis, and that was very clear to me. And and uh, I'd, I'd love to do it again sometime in the future. Absolutely. We, we would be more than delighted to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>